Welcome to She Is Your Neighbor, a show where we discuss the realities and complexities of domestic violence. This podcast is brought to you by Women's Crisis Services of Waterloo Region, a charitable organization in Ontario, Canada. I'm your host, Jenna Main. Join me as we talk to different people each week to learn how domestic violence impacts people from all walks of life. She is your neighbor, and we all have a role to play in ending domestic violence. This week's episode is called Violence Against Indigenous Women and Girls with Lori Campbell. Lori is the director of the Indigenous Student Centre at the University of Waterloo. She is a child of the 60s scoop, as well as an intergenerational survivor of the residential school system. Over the past 25 years, she has actually been able to find and contact her birth mom and her many siblings who are spread all across the country. In this episode, Lori opens up about her childhood experiences, she shares her personal experience with domestic violence, she explains what it means to identify as two-spirit, and she also speaks more broadly about violence against Indigenous women and girls. It was really amazing to hear about her journey, and I'm sure you will be inspired and will learn a lot from her. I know that was the case for me anyways. Thanks again for joining me today. Can you start by sharing a little bit about yourself? Sure, so uh, I'm Laurie Campbell. Uh, I'm so I'm a Two-Spirit Cree Métis woman. My family is from Treaty 6 territory in northern Saskatchewan, and my mom's from Montreal Lake Cree First Nation. And I am an intergenerational survivor of the Indian residential school system, so that means my grandmother went to residential school. And I'm a child from the 60s scoop generation, and so um, after the residential schools fell out of favor, um, as an assimilation policy, the government decided that uh, they should take Indigenous children and adopt them into white families in particular. And so that's what they started doing, is they started taking kids out of homes and putting us in foster care. And um, they would run ads in the paper, uh, in the major papers across this country, and we were called Wednesday's Child. And there were pictures of us, usually with a different first name. Um, and they would say, a child is waiting. And the um, irony with that is that uh, most of the families we were taken from, if they had access to the paper, many of them saw their kids in the paper. They didn't know necessarily that their kids weren't coming back. And so well, the paper was advertising, the government propaganda was advertising that kids are waiting for homes, there were families that were waiting for us to come back to them. So when I went to foster care, then I was um, adopted when I was two years old. And I have um, six living siblings and the probably thing that I'm most proud of that I've you know, ever accomplished to date in, in this lifetime so far is that um, by the time I was 19, I started looking for all my siblings in my birth family. And so I spent 25 years, it took me, and um, the government was not a help. It uh, was, if anything, it was a barrier, and so it really took a lot of um, research skills, which I'm an academic and a researcher, so I kind of <laughs> had a good foundation of that. But um, over the course of the 25 years, I managed to locate um, all six of my living siblings who were spread out between Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and out here in Ontario. 
and also find my birth mom and reconnect with all of them. Oh wow, that's amazing. Yeah. I can't believe you were able to do that, but it did take a long time, so. It did, and, and, and mediums changed, and, and actually one of the key things in finding my last sibling was um, social media and being able to put, circulate things on Facebook, and so he was the one I had the most um, challenging time finding. He's uh, just a couple years younger than me. I knew that he had been adopted and gone back into care and then adopted again, which made a really messy paper trail. And so his name changes had gone been through a few times, and so that also made it more difficult. But um, eventually, I started. I circulated a post on social media, and it went. It went. Um, there was articles on it in like Australia to like many other countries and. Um, and, and kids did go. Right now there's a mapping project on with the 60 Scoop projects that's showing um, all the different countries where Indigenous children, children were adopted out into. And um, yeah, and so it was through one of those posts that somebody who knew um, a person that they thought might have, they, that they'd come in contact with that might have been my brother um, had reached out to me. But at the same time, I had also received this hundreds, because I have the stack printed off still, of uh, messages through social media from other, um, e either young Indigenous men who were um, looking for their families, or um, mothers of children whose dads had been uh, through the 60 Scoop, and they were trying to find out to try and help um, their partners, if they were still partners, become more healthy, and to also find out the lineage of their children. Oh wow! Wow, yeah. that's quite the journey. That's yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. It's one good thing about social media then is the power and the reach of it too. That's for sure. There is absolutely yeah. Mm -hmm. So today we're going to be talking about how domestic violence impacts Indigenous women and girls. I know you can't speak for everybody, but you can speak from your own experience and help share a little bit with us today. So we know that domestic violence can occur as a result of intergenerational trauma that's experienced by Indigenous people. And in fact, we know that Indigenous women and girls are actually killed at six times the rate of non-Indigenous women in Canada, which is quite a staggering figure. So I was kind of hoping today that you could share from your perspective how colonization has led to this cycle of violence and specifically how it impacts Indigenous women and girls. Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, and, and uh, hearing that stat, it's always, um, it always takes me aback, um, even though I know what it is and I know the stories because I hear them within my community and from my family. But, um, you know, our, our rate is being six times greater when we are actually, as an Indigenous population in our entirety, less than 5% of the national population in total. And so half of that is about two and a half percent that are gonna be women, and uh, yet we're um, affected by violence six times greater, um, which is just really, really, really hard to hear. Uh, you know, I, it, it does, it, you know, it dates back to colonization and systemic racism, which is really something that's on the, systemic racism is on the tip of everybody's tongue today, but, you know, colonization, um, had a very specific goal and and the goal was to for, for settlers to acquire land and in order to acquire land there had to be a plan to get rid of the original peoples on that land and so um, that's that's what uh, that's what occurred here um, early on uh, was Sir John A. Macdonald the first Prime Minister he created the um, the Northwest Mounted Police to actually surveil and confine indigenous peoples on their reserves um, 
throughout history, if you look at um, colonized areas, you will see that one of the, uh, you know, a good way to kind of do that and to break a people is to um, rape and perpetuate violence against the women and harm the children. And if you do that, you can break the men. And so this, uh, you know, has, has essentially been our, been our history of, of um, the police were um, set up to um, keep us confined, to uh, imprison us for not um, staying on our reserves. And the propaganda at the time really um, led people to believe that we were uh, savages, that we were um, uh, less than human. And when you get a... Um, you know, a, a specific course of action that tries to get the greater masses to believe that, it also makes it easier to perpetuate violence against them. And so we become targets. And uh, some of the targeting has been very specifically by policing and by institutions. Um, and that still, still occurs today. Um, my uh, auntie, Maria Campbell, um, wrote a book in 1973 called Half-Breed. And you may have uh, heard about, it just got re-released last year with two pages that had been taken out by her publisher at the time of publication. And of course, as an Indigenous woman in 1973, you didn't really have a choice of like saying, you know, oh, I want those pages are necessary, they need to be there. But it was two pages that talked about her sexual assault by an RCMP officer uh, when she was a child. And I often wonder when I hear these stories and these intergenerational stories that have um, been passed down, what could have been different if um, people like my auntie's story had even been published in that book at that time because there was very few indigenous stories being told at that time and, and would we be in a, different, in a different place from that? Yeah, thanks for expanding on that. I know, and I know, I'm sorry, I know that stat is hard to hear and it's hard to talk about. Um, I think it is important we recognize it because I don't think it's something, even though it should be, I don't think it is common knowledge um, for everybody. So I think the more we do talk about it and try and provide some education and information, I, I think it's really important. So mm -hmm. thanks for being here for today and yeah. for talking about it. Thank you. Um, so I know there can also be additional risk factors uh, for women in general living in rural areas and also for Indigenous women living in remote areas. For example, it can be harder to access emergency shelter um, and seek other services as well, as well. So I was wondering if you could explain what some of these barriers are for Indigenous women when they're seeking support. Yeah, so just numerous different things. Sometimes just locations are small and there isn't um, a center there or a shelter or any resources there to help people in the moment because we know when people are in crisis, we need to be able to like respond immediately. Um, and uh, so, so the resources aren't, aren't there. Um, oftentimes, many of the resources uh, aren't um, culturally appropriate or they don't have people in the spaces that look like or are indigenous peoples or that understand the culture or that understand the history of intergenerational trauma and how that affects us. And, and I know that there's, you know, we have um, high rates of uh, violence in other communities as well. Uh, you know, um, other racialized and, and uh, diverse communities. But one of the things that is very specifically different here in, you know, this land currently that we call Canada is that indigenous peoples um, of this land are trying to, um, you know, crawl out and crawl up 
in the land where the ongoing oppression is still occurring and the ongoing violence is occurring. And so that does kind of make things just a little bit different and the relationships a little bit different. Our history, we have the longest history with the systems in this country. Um, there's, you know, some of the other things that we put that we put in place, like, uh, you know, whether, whether it's like things, um, natural resource development or exploitation, by um, outside of indigenous communities that often sets up near to indigenous communities creates things like man camps and we know uh, it by research now but it's only really new to you know the rest of the people in Canada that that this is an issue because we have known about it forever that um, that bad things happen around these man camps and the population of women that is, is uh, are in those areas are going to be indigenous women and um, you know you, you put a bunch of uh, people who are working hard making big money and, and uh, away from their families and, and um, there's just a lot of bad things that come out of there and so that causes harm to our indigenous communities and indigenous women and uh, two-spirit people as well um, sometimes the if, if there isn't a, a resource within the community and people have to leave the community I don't think most Canadians really understand the culture shock that occurs and I know it's easy for us to sit here in the city and think like well who wouldn't want to come to this city you know we have everything here we can you know get get a milkshake at any time of the day and you know there's all these different things that we can do but um, at the same time we can walk down the street and have nobody say hi to us or not recognize anybody and um, the sense of kinship and community is extremely strong in in uh, rural areas and in indigenous communities and so uh, there's also the issue of like not wanting to leave the community to seek resources because you also leave your own personal support system and uh, and then oftentimes going into a space that doesn't really understand uh, you know the intergenerational trauma that that people are experiencing and then I think there's also you know there's also just like the mistrust you know it's uh, in the last 10 years we have court cases going on of forced sterilization by our health system we have, uh, you know, um, sexual violence perpetuated by policing um, against Indigenous women. And, and we have over-incarceration of men, Indigenous men. We're 25% 25, 25 of uh, incarcerations in the male prisons in Canada are Indigenous men. And again, we're only 2.5% of the population. And the intergenerational trauma has not just affected the women but it affects the men and um, we don't want to send our men to jail and we know that uh, you know research again shows that the systemic racism um, our men are going to get um, surveilled more they're going to get more breaches they're going to because you're surveilled more you get more breaches because you're you're in sight uh, you get longer sentences um, all these other sorts of things occur and so it just makes it real it's really complex it's absolutely really complex yeah yeah and you were at the beginning there talking a bit about the man camps as well i wondered if you could elaborate a little bit more on those and explain how that works and how women are impacted by these camps right so you know like so outside say like on the oil pipelines and and uh, these are more common um i think out west than out than out here but um or i'm more familiar with them because i'm from out west maybe i'll put it that way and so they're large encampments that go up near uh pipelines in in, in a specific example uh where where men are living while they're working 
and um, they're often in very remote areas in northern areas and that's often where there's a very high indigenous well high by our you know as far as population overall like there's indigenous population and so um, like I said before there's uh, there are always issues it seems based on research now that you know again like the the um, large access to money and, and boredom and downtime and um, alcohol by people within the camps um, and who go out looking for what they might call fun but what we call sort of death and and trouble and violence and so the people nearest by are going to be the ones who are who are targeted and those are going to be the indigenous people and in particular indigenous women girls and two-spirit people and um yeah, and so that so that affects us. Other things that affect us, I mean, are, are even things like public transportation. You know, shutting down a public transportation, which puts us at risk if we do want to go to the city or to a center or or try to um, go somewhere to another reserve or community to seek some safety from from um, extended family. We don't have the ability to take public transportation for that. Um, with the Greyhound bus, for example, at West that shut shut pretty much shut down. Um, so therefore, you're on foot. And people know this. So as much as we talk about, you know, Indigenous women being missing and murdered, I think that's really kind of the palatable way of saying it instead of really looking at the issue of we are being hunted um, and stolen and killed. You know, people hunt us, people prey on us, knowing that, um, knowing that we're less likely to be believed, knowing that we're less likely to report, and knowing that... Um, you know, our circumstances and, and uh, things are challenging for us. And so um, it makes us targets. Yeah. Well, I like how you, the way you put it too. Well, I don't like it, but I think it's important to recognize what is palatable and why do we speak the way we speak about things. And, and I think it's important to bring these issues to light too. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes it seems like, you know, there's this pathologizing of Indigenous women, um, which and, and I think, you know, saying our language is important, but, you know, if we think about it in terms of pathologizing, you think that thinking that there's something inherently wrong with Indigenous women, that we can't take care of ourselves, that it's, uh, we're bringing it upon ourselves. Um, and that allows the rest of the, you know, society to kind of not think it's um, sort of their issue. But, um, you know, the violence that occurs, and, and I, I didn't grab the exact most up-to-date stat on, on this, but, it's um, yes, there's indigenous violence within indigenous communities, but there's a heck of a lot of violence against indigenous women and girls that happens from people outside of the indigenous communities, and um, and for that to be occurring, you know, like there's predators out there that are doing that, and why aren't we holding them accountable? Something else I wanted to talk about was. Um what it means to be a two-spirit person. Um, so I want to know why you think it's important to recognize two-spirit people when we're talking about missing and murdered Indigenous women and when we're talking about Indigenous people in general. Absolutely. So um, I think, you know, sometimes I think the more I think about it, I think the gender binary is actually a newest, like is the newest sort of construct um, that there is only a gender bin binary. and. Um, as opposed to you know multiple genders, um, we have stories of uh, and words in many of our languages for uh, naming multiple genders. 
Um, the term two-spirit it, it, itself is actually a new term. Um, it was uh, came out of a, a national or international conference um, in Manitoba in, I think, 1990, where uh, some Indigenous uh, queer people had gotten together and were trying to um, do some, you know, cultural reclamation and understanding our history in our own communities. And of course, again, colonization uh, really messed that up and, and uh, the uh, force, forcing Christianity upon us and with its ideas about, um, about uh, you know, queer people. And so at that conference, people uh, came up with a term that they felt would be an, an umbrelling, umbrella sort of term to identify Indigenous queer people, and they came up with two spirits. And the term has kind of uh, evolved a bit as well over the years, and, and you know, this is only my understanding of it, and uh, from, you know, two-spirit teachers and, and mentors that I have. And um, so to me, two-spirit, I'll, I'll say like a couple things about myself. Sometimes I'll just say I'm like queer or indigiqueer, which is just kind of a, like a indigiqueer, just kind of like a trendy way to say like, yeah, I'm queer and I'm indigenous. Um, when I'm saying two-spirit, I'm speaking about my role within the community. And so we have in our kinship systems, um, in our communities, everybody has roles and responsibilities. And uh, also like with, within our ceremony and, and within those kinds of things. And so when I'm speaking, and, and I do, I belong to uh, the ceremonial lodge of my auntie and, and I have my you know lodge brothers and sisters. And But I have a certain responsibility of, of what I, do within that circle and what I bring to that circle. So to me, when I'm saying two-spirit, I'm speaking about, I'm letting somebody know that I have um, strong cultural connection in knowing who I am and, and where I sit within that circle and the roles that I do within my community. So, I'm, I'm, so I would also say that uh, you have to be indigenous to be two-spirit, um, but you don't have to be two-spirit if you're Indigenous and queer. You don't necessarily need to identify that way, but non-Indigenous peoples would not say they're two-spirit. Two um, and it's not okay for them to say that. So I think about it in terms like that. And I really, you know, when I moved to this community a number of years ago, it uh, seemed really important to people um, to have somebody, you know, kind of name that in public spaces and I had you know the power and privilege with my my job and and ability and, and supports supports around me to be able to do that so although I I called myself two spirits sort of more quietly back home but everybody knew it wasn't and really until I got out here that I really make a practice of making sure that it's heard and and that it's out there um, and we held actually just the other day at the land back camp the first ever two spirit um, gathering uh, for for our community and uh, it was a beautiful thing the first ever in the region that um, people are aware of so yeah oh, that's really cool yeah. yeah and then I was also wondering if you could maybe touch on uh, your personal experience if you have had personal experience with domestic violence if you'd be willing to share a bit yeah. about that yeah and I and I think this is um, you know, like I think these these stories like this do do need to be shared, and I think it's also important to think about the impact and the intersectionality of of not just being an indigenous person, but then being a queer or two spirit indigenous person, and um, 
the, the you know the 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 access to resources um, can get even more narrow. And so um, when I was in my early twenties, in my first um, queer relationship, um, the 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 partner I had was well, she was violent, and uh, she was uh, physically violent, and um, she was also emotionally violent. You know, she would. Um, lock me in rooms, she would uh, take my car keys so I couldn't go anywhere, she would uh, hit me. And I was in my early 20s at that time, and although I knew I was Indigenous and I was like out as an Indigenous person, I don't think that's a thing, but I mean, people knew I was Indigenous. Um, I already also had grown up, um, because I'd grown up away from my family, I'd grown up with an identity that really internalized um, that the stereotypes of Indigenous people were who I was and that I was, you know, um, not good and that uh, because I was Indigenous that I was worth less than other people and and um, so you internalize those things and then, you know, coming out as a, as a queer person, well I wasn't out yet but I had a partner uh, that was also at a time when it was like really horribly challenging for people to come out and there were no supports and so um, I didn't. I I didn't know what to do. Actually, I was like I wasn't. I hadn't seen like or knew that I knew other like queer people even, and so I just I didn't know what to do. And and um, uh, it it just kind of further made it isolating. Uh, eventually, I worked at a youth center, and I went to um, one of my bosses, who's uh, still um, a long long life lifelong friend of mine, and I uh, mentioned it to her finally because I just I like I didn't I didn't know what to do and and I found um, like there was a, like a family service organization that had a domestic violence um, uh, sessions like weekly sort of drop-in sessions and so I actually managed to get up enough courage to go to that um, already feeling you know concerned that it would be uh, you know that there would be no indigenous anything reflected within it and um, also, just not knowing how I was going to navigate being a queer person there, and and yeah, I like I went once, like I couldn't say anything because everything the language was all heteronormative. Um, there was nothing uh, that spoke to me uh, as an indigenous person, and it was like probably like really an awful experience. It felt like just another level of violence then that I that I had to um, suffer within that, and so I, I think you know when we think about. Um, the complexities of, of thinking about our two our two spirits in our community, uh, we know in mainstream that queer people are, um, in particular trans people, um, are targeted at exponential rates, and so you factor in also then queer indigenous uh, or indigenous people who are queer, it exponentially increases at six times to way more. And also at that time when I worked at that youth center, there was a young youth that used to come there that. Uh, um, was queer and he was killed while I was working there. Not at the center, but he was killed in our city one evening. And um, yeah, and so it's it's just becomes like really, really isolating. And there's also the added for me, you know, as a, I call, you know, I'm an indigenous uh, feminist theory person. Um, at the time, I, I uh, thought that, you know, women weren't, uh, um, didn't perpetuate violence. And when it first started occurring, I mean, I was like stunned. I was like, how can this be? Because women, because I was also so socialized to think that men are the only ones who can um, uh, harm women in that way. And so that was just another layer of like, not like 
that kept me there probably longer until I liked it because I just couldn't believe what was happening, right? So I didn't know how that could be. So I, I finally was able to leave. I, I, you know, I had some friends um, as, as it went on, but I mean, like, when the abuse first started happening, which was very quick in the relationship, um, I, uh, was, I was there for three years, and um, I hadn't, I don't recall really telling anybody, even um, I had some queer friends at the time, and like I started to get a few more queer friends by the end of that three years, and but um, yeah, pretty much really like what happened was you know it was just kind of one of those like final days, and and uh, um, you know I ended up all bruised and whatnot, and managed to get out of the house, and I left and went to a friend's house, and um, they sheltered me uh, for quite a while, and um, and then then the stalking started, right. Uh, and so, but I, I felt uh, pretty good and pretty safe to, to be there. And um, yeah, eventually it kind of, the stalking kind of died out, but I just kind of lived through that. But I didn't, there was no mainstream. And then who am I gonna tell? Like I didn't phone the police, like, you know, in the early nineties, like, yeah, I'm, I mean, this is like, I mean, there was indigenous people, like and women in particular were still getting like killed out there and um, in very, you know, public ways and, and um, people weren't being held accountable much like today. But um, yeah, so there was never any police service or, or counseling or, or anything that I had engaged with. I find that really, like I feel mm. terrible hearing that and it's really frustrating to hear too because we know that leaving is the most dangerous time when there's domestic violence and that's when violence is most likely to escalate. So mm. we always recommend make sure you do reach out to a women's shelter somewhere, get support leaving, make a safety plan, all these things. So it it really bothers me that mm -hmm. you weren't able to get that support. So I'm sorry mm -hmm. to hear that. Yeah, and and you know, and, and granted, like um, it was in the early um, '90s, and I, and I do know that uh, certainly in the, in the area where I'm from, like that there are other um, supports and services that already have made some changes. But um, you know, I I know in a in a region like ours, um, you know, where where I come from, like there's we have a very high indigenous population, and so we have you know our our um, spaces do have many indigenous peoples working in them as well and and um, access to things that indigenous peoples might need but I think you know I think kind of across the board there's still a couple things that are missing and one is really thinking about like what is decolonial practice and um, and what does that mean because even as indigenous peoples if we're trained um, and sort of marinated in the same colonized system uh, we still sometimes can perpetuate harm ourselves and and uh, you know for myself as a researcher in my grad studies class like I specifically took a class that was looking at um, how uh, our, the students in the class and we were black and indigenous and how we um, ways in which we perpetuate harm as well trying to do the work we're doing and so really trying to take that decolonial approach so that we can um, you know be well and be healthy and provide appropriate services and um, yeah, and you know, and in our community, also, you know, recently too, I, I had, uh, I don't work for this organization, but I had somebody um, reach out from the community who was, who was, uh, you know, wondering about like, if, if there were going to be like medicines or, or um, you know, smudging available and things like that, um, should they, uh, you know, reach out, reach out for support and, um, yeah, we just, we just need people to know that those are available and talking to the right people who can help. The organization plan to do that yeah I think so too and bringing that together mm -hmm. um, because like you said people deal and people heal in different ways sorry and I think it needs to be an approach that 
works for that person meets them where they're at, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and because of, you know, the history of colonization too, and same at the university, like I have so many young people that walk into my, through my door who they know they're indigenous, but they, they're looking for something, but they haven't had that connection yet. They haven't had somebody help them because of the impacts of colonization. And so their parents maybe didn't talk about it or um, other things like that. And so there's also the same thing I would foresee also, you know, would incur in, in our shelters and stuff like, and so sometimes it's just a, a matter of, um, you know, making things available and, and uh, bringing in people who are going to help uh, our women and two-spirits be healthy, which might mean, you know, Indigenous knowledge keepers or elders or even commu trusted community members um, that work with the organization. Yeah, I think so too. Actually, when I first started here, and I won't say it's something we do regularly, but I did get invited to a smudging ceremony we had out back in the courtyard because yeah. we did have some Indigenous women staying with us and they had invited in an elder and it was pretty cool because I'd never been to anything like that before and they invited everyone to participate in it and it was really cool to watch the residents be able to share their traditions with the other residents whether they were indigenous or not so mm -hmm. it was that for me was a pretty cool experience and I, I think it's something we need to see more of mm -hmm. um, awesome. um, and part of this project the idea with it uh, it's called the she is your neighbor project and we're trying to raise awareness about the fact that domestic violence is a lot more common than people may think. It happens in lots of different neighborhoods, and whether you know it or not, she is your neighbor. So one of the other goals with this project is to encourage people to be better neighbors and think about how we can be better neighbors. So I'm wondering how you think we can be better neighbors to specifically to Indigenous women and girls. Yeah, and I, you know, and, and I'm an educator. That's uh, kind of you know my main role, and and what uh, I seem to be good at and so I do it and I'm encouraged by my community to do it but I think you know people need to be accountable for some of their learning and you know I am eternally grateful for the uh, people the old ones who gave their testimony during the TRC as painful and horrific as that was and those who have um, put forward their testimony in the missing and murdered indigenous women and girls and two-spirit inquiry and so and, and the reports are, are long, but there are executive summaries that aren't um, long reads. And I, I just really you know hope that people will take some accountability and, and just look at some of that a little bit because it will um, it should shift your thinking in uh, how um, you view things around you. And, and it's not, and it's not uh, you know, we all grew up sort of in this education system that systematically denied us the opportunity to learn about um, Indigenous uh, history in Canada and contemporary realities, both as Indigenous peoples and non-Indigenous um, peoples as well. And even when I think about, you know, what was going on around residential schools and even the 60s scoop, I mean, I think that's like the biggest government um, cover-up like in the history of this nation and so it's not it's not so much that I think everybody's ancestor was like on side with you know causing all this harm I would dare say that most people's um, ancestors when they came and settled here uh, probably had no idea they probably just heard all the stories because by that time the indigenous peoples were all confined on the reserves and um, the bulk of people really had no idea there's a few stories or stories about you know um, people noticing uh, indigenous peoples in southern Alberta who were so starved that they were eating grass and so trying to like do something about it but you know there was no social media there was nothing um, 
it was just really hard to sort of uh, do some things then. But today we know different and there's no reason that um, people in Canada uh, haven't looked, you know, haven't read those summaries. So I think those are kind of like two starting points. And when people do that, um, they need to talk to their friends about it. They don't need to come talk to me and they don't need to uh, come talk to um, uh, other in random indigenous peoples. I'll side, I'll side uh, back up a little bit. They could potentially talk to me because I do take on an educator role, but it's um, we know what's in there. So having somebody else tell me, oh, I read this and like, oh my goodness, I didn't know this. Like that, that just actually reminds me of like the pain that my grandma suffered. And the reason, you know, that I am where I am today, the reason that I spent my entire adult life trying to find my siblings. The police took my grandmother out of the home. The police took my mom. The police took me. You know, like my interaction, um, I, I'm well aware and, and well versed in this and so are many Indigenous peoples. And I think uh, on the tip of everybody's tongue right now is, is you know, things around um, anti-racism, uh, the uh, Black, Indigenous and racialized um, solidarity work and uh, this all this does all tie in together and if, if people really are, are interested in a you know more just um, and safe you know society and community here in KW that uh, where everyone has the opportunity to thrive and, and and some of us aren't just barely trying to survive then I would uh, you know suggest like take take on some of that accountability because it might help people see things differently. And if you have done that, you will probably see things differently. You will probably engage differently with your neighbor. And so, um, and we watch for cues all the time when we interact with people who aren't indigenous about what they know and don't know and if it's gonna be safe to let them, for me, who can, uh, not so much in the summertime, but certainly in the wintertime, I'm pretty uh, white passing. And, um, Therefore, I would have to like maybe say that I'm indigenous to somebody, but we watch for cues to know if it's going to be safe to do that in just regular conversations or with our neighbors. So, um, yeah, and and I guess the other thing would be to believe, believe us. I, th I think we're um, not believed as as much as other people might be believed. And um, again, the research backs up now that what we've been saying is true is true, and the video is the big thing right now that's like proving um, that violence is, is occurring uh, at the rate that, you know, black, indigenous and racialized people say it is in all forms. So I think, uh, yeah, you know, believe us that it's, it's, it's occurring and um, be our neighbors. We're awesome neighbors. I love my neighborhood. <laughs> you are. Thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me. That wraps up this week's show, but the conversation is far from over. We want to hear what you think. Use the hashtag SheIsYourNeighbor on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram and join in the conversation. We all have a role to play in ending domestic violence.